You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, another conservative civil war threatens to bubble over. So will the government start taking its own backbenchers more seriously? We also take a look at the increasingly contentious fight over the next Supreme Court nominee. And at the very end, I find out about what coronavirus has been like for Madagascar, where the president is peddling his own herbal cure for coronavirus. First up. As the government's emergency coronavirus powers are up for renewal next week, James Forsyth writes in this week's cover piece about the upcoming Tory brawl. A group of backbenchers led by Sir Graham Brady, chair of the 1922 committee, are tabling an amendment to put a parliamentary lock on any future new COVID restrictions put in by the government. Will they succeed? James joins me now together with Sir Graham himself. So James, can you tell us about the problem that the government is facing? So number 10 now has a preemption policy when it comes to COVID. The idea is to basically try and tighten up restrictions now so the virus has no chance to get out of control. I don't think that is where most Tory MPs are. I think most Tory MPs are still to keep the virus within the capacity of the NHS to deal with people. Now, right now, all Tory MPs can really do is grumble about this in private. The government is operating under these emergency powers, which means it doesn't need to bring stuff to a vote in the House of Commons. But I think it is telling every time Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock give a statement to Parliament, the number of questions from the Tory benches that are critical is rising, which I think is a tell. Now, Graham Brady, who's with us today, has put down an amendment to this Emergency Powers Act, which would essentially require a parliamentary vote before any changes to the nationwide rules. And I think this is, if it is called by the Speaker, is likely to pass. I think, you know, both the Whip's office and those who are uh, signed the motion think that there are more than 40 Tory MPs who will support it, So, which wipes out the government's majority. It means that if Keir Starmer backs it, it is likely to pass. So, Graham, do you think you have the numbers for next week? I believe we do have the numbers for next week, but obviously my preference would be not to have to move the amendment at all. I'd be delighted if my discussions with the government come to a good conclusion and we get an agreement in advance that the government's own motion will promise that proper scrutiny, which entails not just debate, but crucially a vote in Parliament to approve these really very wide-ranging powers. And how are those talks with the government going at the moment? We've had good positive talks, but I can't yet say that we've secured the the goal. What sort of COVID strategy would you like to see if you get what you want, um, regardless whether it's through amendment or through the government agreeing to it? Of course, the, the amendment is really about proper scrutiny. Of course, I have my own views about different degrees of lockdown and different uh, measures to tackle COVID-19. But most importantly, and first and foremost, what I'd say is that proper debate and proper opportunity for scrutiny will improve the government's response, whatever kind of response it might be, because it's that chance for people to drill down into the detail in public and force ministers to answer some of those difficult questions. And you know that might be things like, why a rule of six, not eight? 
It might be why, given that the Prime Minister said again at Prime Minister's questions, that primary age school children are very unlikely to catch the virus or to spread it. Why did we not follow the Scottish example in excluding young children from the rule of six? But most crucially, I think what it would be is an opportunity for members of parliament to force ministers to say what it is that specific measures are intended to achieve and therefore, according to what criteria, they will be brought to an end. Because what we've seen over the last six months is an increasing number of different measures brought in for an indeterminate period of time. The lockdown was initially for three weeks with a three-week review and it was intended to uh, be, as James said, an opportunity to ensure that the NHS critical care capacity wasn't overwhelmed but it then Mm. morphed into something else and we shouldn't allow that we should make sure that ministers set out what their targets are what their aims are and what the criteria are uh, under which things will be uh, lifted would you also like to scrutinize the scientists behind this more as well james has talked a lot about on our daily coffee house shots podcast about how the chris witty patrick valence press conference earlier this week was flawed because it didn't allow any questioning at all yes and maybe it would have been a good idea for that to be a press conference for medical correspondents and scientific correspondents who might have burrowed away at some of the real points of detail although one of the things that i find very interesting at the moment is palpable how uh, many intelligent thinking members of the public are really engaging with this and are looking at evidence from around the world they're looking at the statistics they're looking at the graphs Mm. uh, from different countries they're looking at whether the Swedish approach maybe will prove to have been better than the British approach or those in France or Spain Uh, so I think having that engaged informed and educated public is really important but when you've got that and people are starting to come to their own conclusions about the way things should be handled, they then are saying, well, why don't we have a voice? Why is nobody officially at the heart of government able to put these questions? And that, of course, is the fundamental role of Parliament, or it should be. Mm. Uh, And if my amendment passes, or if the government comes to the same conclusion with a little bit of assistance from me and my colleagues, then that opportunity will be there. The public will have its voice via its elected representatives. James, we used to talk about how big a majority of 80 seemed, uh, at least right after the, the general election. Is it a sign of how acrimonious things are in the Conservative Party that the government might lose this vote? I think you've got to take, take slightly separate out two issues. There's one kind of one cabinet minister is I think kind of better knowledge of the parliamentary party than most said to me. Rebellions when people can say that they're voting for the House of Commons rather than against the government always pick up steam. You know, mm. most people who become MPs are kind of believe in the the benefits of parliamentary scrutiny in the Commons, and so they will vote to give themselves, in this case, actually to return to themselves the powers that they normally exercise on behalf of their constituents. I do think though. But there is a a kind of growing tension over this. I think number 10 was careless with party management. I think partly because it looked at that majority of 80 and thought, right, we can get on with stuff. We don't need to spend lots of time doing the boring grind of selling policies on this. And now I think they're trying to play catch up. And I think it is more difficult because the COVID rules mean that, you know, lots of the things that prime ministers who are having a kind of rocky spell in their relationship with their parliamentary party would normally do, you know, like invite everyone into number 10, lots of big gatherings. All those things aren't possible right now. If you judge by their actions, you can see number 10's concern in that when the rule of six was announced, 
it was a simply a televised press conference. There was no statement to Parliament. There was no attempt made. It wasn't even discussed in Cabinet beforehand. It wasn't, there wasn't an attempt to woo the parliamentary party to it. This time round, you had a statement made to Parliament. The night before that statement was made, Boris Johnson addressed the Executive and Two Committee, only the second time he's done that since he became Prime Minister. And then there was a kind of substantial Cabinet discussion of it that morning. I think that, that is a sign that Number 10 know that they have got to do more to bring people with them. Someone reminded me um, of Sir Humphrey Appleby's line in Yes Minister that, that gratitude in politics is merely a likely expectation of favours to come. I, I, think the, I, think the, I think that Boris Johnson is clocking onto that fairly fast and knows that he needs to kind of rebuild those relations. Graham, you're the chair of the 1922 committee and the Prime Minister has only come to see you twice and one of those times was that Zoom meeting that was pretty ill-fated. <laughs> in general, what do you think the government should be doing to get backbenchers happier, more on side? Well, I, I think the simple answer is more engagement, more involvement. And James is right to say that, of course, ministers and the Prime Minister need to make sure they bring colleagues with them. But I would go further than that and say that members of Parliament ought to be involved in the formation of policy. And it's at times like this uh, that the role of the constituency member of Parliament really comes to the fore and comes into sharp focus because it's members of Parliament who are hearing directly from our constituents what the impact of these different measures is. And you know, whilst people might tell an opinion pollster, uh, yes, they'll happily do anything to make sure that we don't have any more tragedies arising from COVID-19, a lot of people are also saying that they're experiencing their own tragedies in their own life, which might be grandparents who can't see their grandchildren. It might be people unable to say their farewells to dying uh, relatives. The pain that comes from people losing businesses that they spent decades building up and people losing jobs in very large numbers. Uh, just this week I had a big employer in my constituency going into administration uh, with the loss of 500 jobs. That is a lot of misery. It's a lot of people who will worry, a lot of families that will be uh, struggling. And it's members of parliament who are hearing those things directly. And we need to be able to transmit those messages to government so that government can weigh in the balance the, you know, the, the competing downsides of everything that can be done in, in dealing with a pandemic like this. And I guess that's one of the differences between the second round time round and the first time round, which is that the first time round seemed much more of an emergency. We went into lockdown pretty quickly and so Parliament was dissolved and went to sit at home. But I guess now you're saying second time round, MP should have more scrutiny because we know what's coming. Absolutely. And Parliament came back on the 21st of April. We had a short summer recess, but we've mostly been sitting since late April. Most members of Parliament are now attending Parliament in person too. Unlike that period at the end of March, there's really no reason why the government can't put things to debate and decision in Parliament. And There is also a remote voting system. If you got into a situation where everyone had to scatter back to the four winds because, you know, you had an out, a COVID outbreak in Parliament and it was considered, you know, not that you would want to send everyone back to the constituencies in that situation. But if you had a situation where it didn't become, where it became unverbal for MPs to be in the chamber, there is now a secure remote voting system. I think on your point, Cindy, there is a length of time question. It is one thing to have six months of an emergency measures. If we put a whole year of the most consequential decisions being taken without parliamentary votes is, I think, a different matter. And I think it is, I think, I think, you know, one can see why it might have been necessary in March. I struggle to see why now there is the justification for that. 
And the, the classic example, I think, was the rule of six. It was leaked on a Tuesday. There was a statement to the press on a Wednesday, uh, not even announced properly in the House of Commons. But on that Thursday, before the measures came into force on the following Monday, on the Thursday we just had general debates in the House of Commons. It would have been simple to move those aside Mm -hmm. and have a full day's debate on the rule of six and a vote. And Graham, one of the reasons, of course, that the first round it was done in such urgency was because it is, this is a global pandemic, so things sometimes have to be done overnight. What if there is an emergency power that does need to come in because the situation is changing so fast? Well, I, I think it's unlikely that things would change that quickly. Normally, there's a, a lead time. People can see the direction in which numbers are moving. But most importantly, the government has already got the powers to act under a different piece of legislation, which is the Civil Contingencies Act. The only difference is the Civil Contingencies Act already contains extensive provisions for parliamentary scrutiny, uh, so they would have to put it to the House within a few days of making the decision if they acted under the CCA. But James, you do point out in your article one reason why the government might not want scrutiny, parliamentary scrutiny on this, which is Labour and how Keir Starmer can make the most of this. It's what David Cameron did at his first PMQs as leader of the opposition. He turned to Tony Blair and he said, look, don't water down your school reforms to win Labour support. We'll be with you in the division lobbies. So just bring them to the Commons tomorrow. And that was a very effective tactic for him because it made Cameron look statesmanlike, prepared to vote for a Labour Prime Minister's measure, but also drove a wedge between Blair and his own party. If you know his own party are worried that these reforms were kind of Tory education reforms. The willingness of David Cameron to back them compounded that problem. And I think if you end up with parliamentary votes on all this COVID stuff, you would get into a similar situation. So, for example, if Boris Johnson came to the Commons and said, I'm going to shut hospitality for two weeks uh, and then review things, it's very conceivable that 40 Tory MPs would not want to support that. At which point Keir Starmer can stand up and say, no, 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 no need to compromise on this Prime Minister, bring it forward and I'll back you. And that would play perfectly to Keir Starmer's image of himself as a kind of responsible leader of the opposition. And it would also drive a wedge between the Prime Minister and their own backbenches. When Prime Ministers are relying on other parties to get their business through the Commons, it begins to poison their own relationship with their own party very quickly. Graeme, do you worry about that coming, especially as it, uh, when Labour is climbing in the polls? This is about democracy. It's about the fundamental role of Parliament. And if you take that argument, then you wouldn't have votes on any legislation at all. Of course, these things are difficult, but I think it's important that people are prepared to put themselves as legislators in the firing line, let the public see where they stand on things. And you know, an example that James gives, you know, the, the small bar or restaurant owner in my constituency who goes bust because of the restrictions that are placed on bars and restaurants would know in those circumstances who to blame would know that uh, the Labour Party had supported the Conservative government in doing it. At the moment, people can play games and pretend they're not taking responsibility. It may be that I would vote against that and say that I want my constituents to be free to make their own decisions. But I don't want the Labour Party to claim it's got clean hands if it's been supporting those measures. Graham and James, thanks very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Next, as if this American election wasn't dramatic enough, with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a spot has freed up on the Supreme Court, leading to the Democrats and Republicans fighting it out as aggressively as ever. Professor Charles Lipson from the University of Chicago writes about this issue in our political column this week, and he joins me down the line now, together with Freddie Gray, the editor of our US edition. 
So, Charles, why does Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death matter? Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death matters for three reasons. The first is that she was a liberal icon, and the reason she was an icon is that she was not only a brilliant jurist, but she represented something very important socially. She was the preeminent legal voice of a large social movement, namely the rise of women's equality over the past 50 years or so. The second reason it matters is because her replacement by a Republican president and a Republican Senate will flip a seat that was liberal to one that is conservative. And the third reason it matters is that President Trump has decided to move forward with this rapidly. So it changes the dynamic of the presidential race. And I think the fact that he decided to move forward with it rapidly suggests that he wanted to change that dynamic. Freddie, why has this fight got just so contentious? Well, I think there's always been a lot of anxiety about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. I mean, she's been very ill for a long time. Uh, she was an amazing woman, however you look at it. A lot of people may not agree with uh, what she stood for and her feminism and so on, but she was an extraordinary career. But there's been this sort of slightly cultish, almost desperate feeling around Ruth Bader Ginsburg for a while, that once she dies, particularly after Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, Trump's last two uh, Supreme Court justice nominees went through, that the court would become a sort of conservative institution once she goes. And so I think that explains why it's become so fractious instantly. I mean, Kavanaugh was an extraordinary nomination process. I mean, the fact that this high school possible misdemeanor became a national talking point for so long shows just how important this issue is to Americans. But as for why Trump is trying to speed it on, I think I think it's an interesting call for Trump. I think actually it may put him in a bit of difficulty in terms of the election, because let's say he does get his nominee through. His argument is, if you don't vote for me, a lot of independents might think, I would have thought, I'd be interested to know what Charles says about this, a lot of independents might have thought, actually, you know, Biden isn't the be all and end all because there'll still be a conservative court that will stop him doing anything too insane. Mm, that's really interesting. Charles, what do you think? Should Trump actually be waiting? I think that there are several different issues in play here, and I think you've absolutely nailed one of them, which is I've always thought that for people who think Trump colors outside the lines, goes well beyond what presidents should do, he's not unique in that. We've seen a lot of that over the past several presidencies uh, with executive orders and what are called signing statements saying, I'm signing this law, but I don't believe all of it is enforceable and I won't enforce it, so forth. A lot of that. I've always thought that a very literalist conservative court rather than a policy oriented, almost legislative court would be an important restraint on Trump, even if those appointees were Trump's own appointees. But there are two other considerations. One is whether or not the Uh, whole issue 
of judicial appointments will mobilize Democrats or Republicans more and how it will affect independents. I had initially thought it would probably motivate liberals, Democrats more, because Republicans were already turned up to 11 on it. They couldn't turn up anymore. But that may not be so. And one indication it's not so is that over the past several days, since it was clear that Trump would make a nomination, Biden and his vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, have not talked about it, whereas Trump has. So their polling must suggest on the Democratic side that it's not a good issue. The final point is you're assuming the court will remain conservative, but there is no constitutional limit of nine justices on the court. So it is conceivable you could appoint more justices, even though the number has been nine since 1869. It would be a big violation. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt threatened to pack the court with additional justices in 1937. And although he uh, never did so, the historians wrongly say, oh, he lost on that case. He didn't, he won, because the threat changed the court. Now the question is, Biden has been asked, are you going to pack the court during the primaries before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, he said, absolutely not. It would be a terrible thing, but now he won't talk about it. Well, that's not a good sign. Freddie, do you think the Supreme Court should be reformed? Because whether it's stacking the, uh, so that there are more justices or maybe having an age limit on the justices on there. Some people have been saying that this court of nine people where often really contentious issues come down to a five versus four majority is just not suited to the modern day anymore, especially with the justices. You, let, me, let me intervene <laughs> at, at this please point, do, John, Freddie, please do. because... You cannot limit the age of justices without a constitutional amendment. All court justices in the United States are appointed for their lifetimes. Right. That's, that's a rule, and it's in the Constitution, they have and to retire. you couldn't change that. What's changeable without a constitutional amendment is the number of justices on the court. And by the way, not just on that court, but but on lower courts. So you could say, well, President Trump, who's appointed a lot of lower court justices, uh, has appointed too many. Let's add new justices to all of these lower courts and appoint liberals. Well, I, I completely agree with you, Charles, and I defer to you on, on all things. But I do think that we are in, we are sort of hitting a crunch point in the American Constitution, I think. It's always been very tumultuous, but there has been a sort of understanding of a certain amount of goodwill between parties that has just about carried the day at crucial moments, particularly on something like you know packing the Supreme Court. Mm. Charles mentions FDR mm. and so on. But the, the point is now you're getting to a situation where it's feasible that 
The Democrats could try and pack the court after they get in. And then if the Republicans get in, they will try and pack the court. And then there will be a, there'll be a sort of arms race mm. of justices, uh, which will turn the whole thing into a farce. And I just my worry for America, as, as somebody who loves mm. America, is that uh, the Supreme Court has become a sort of it's become a sort of weapon that is used because the main mechanisms of politics aren't working. So you kind of everything gets kicked towards the Supreme Court, which is seen to be final. But then, of course, the Supreme Court is political. It's inherently political because of the Constitution. So does the political court become as corrupted by culture wars and by the big political fights you're going to have in America as everything else? I mean, there is no real authority as to what is right or wrong outside of religion. So if you have a political system, you have to have very good checks and balances. And I I worry that America, and I'll be very interested to know what Charles thinks, I worry that America is, is losing the sort of civility within politics that means that the checks and balances within its constitution work. Losing the civility? Well, screw you. <laughs> <laughs> Man, of course it's true, and sadly so. But it's also true that you, what you said is absolutely true about the court being seen as a more political institution. But I would say that's also true about the lower level courts. American federal judiciary has courts at three levels, a trial level called a district court, appellate level called a circuit court. And whenever you hear decisions now, it is reported which party appointed the judges. That used to not be true. The, the decision itself stood as a legal decision on its own. But now when you hear that they're at an appellate court level where more than one judge uh, might decide something, you hear it was a two-to-one decision with the two Republican appointees. They don't say Republican appointees. They would say with one appointee by George Bush and one appointee by Donald Trump voting to affirm the decision and, and one by Barack Obama or Bill Clinton voting against it. Well, that's just telling you that these courts and the readers of these newspaper articles think it's important to know how, uh, the political stance of the, uh, of the judges, or at least of the presidents who appointed them. Charles, I just want to ask you one one question before, because we've gone a bit off topic, but it is fascinating. But I'm aware of the fact that uh, we're running out of time. Do you think Trump will get his Supreme Court nomination through before the election or before the next inauguration of whoever wins uh, the presidency? It looks right now like it's quite likely that he will get his nomination through what I think people are debating is whether the Democrats will pull out every stop they can to prevent it. And the danger for them is that that might alienate voters in the general election, as it seemed to do when they smeared justice, then a nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, 
with unsubstantiated allegations at the last minute made public, even though they could have been investigated privately in order to smear him and stop his nomination. And it turned out they lost a number of Senate seats after that by people who had opposed Kavanaugh publicly. So I'm sure their concern in a tight race that they might go over the top, but there are plenty of people who will go to the mattresses, to use the phrase from the Godfather, will go to the mattresses to try to defeat any nominee. And if she took two bites of a candy bar from somebody when she was 12 without permission, somebody's going to bring that up as a moral flaw in the candidate who will, as they constantly say, be given a lifetime appointment on the court. I do think that she is likely to be approved before the election. Trump has said it will be a woman. The favorite right now is a professor who served at Notre Dame for a long time and is now on the appellate court just below the Supreme Court. But there are other women with similar qualifications who are in the running as well. Charles and Freddie, thank you very much. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. And last, in this week's issue, we also run a notebook from the writer Jo Deacon. It's not her real name because what she writes about the Madagascan government could land her in a bit of trouble with that. Jo joins me now. So Jo, can you start by telling us what COVID Organics is? Right, yes. So COVID Organics is something the president came up with right back in April um, when we'd hardly had any uh, COVID at all in Madagascar. Um, so it's very quick off the mark. It's principally a drink. It's made out of some local herbs, and um, which have been used, including artisemma, which is used as a cure for malaria. So it's it's not a million of miles away from the sort of Trump cure for for COVID, and it's selling and it's applied also for all children who go to school, which is only the final years at the moment because everyone else is is off as in as in most places in the world. But the people in their final years, for exam years, have to drink the uh, COVID organics. And it's it's notoriously got a bitter taste. So in fact, the Minister of Education was going to spend $2 million on sweets to persuade the children to drink it to take away its bitter aftertaste. But um, that became a great scandal and she got sacked. (laughs) Um, an incident known as Candygate. But this comes from higher than just this minister, doesn't it? It comes straight from, direct from the president. And you mentioned in your piece that uh, the president and his wife have both been seen on TV chugging this. Oh, a- absolutely. Um, it's completely from a president who's, who's very much an entrepreneur. Ever since this whole crisis began, every Sunday evening, we've had a broadcast from a president. It's sort of a bit like a fireside chat. And particularly as the months have gone on, it's just become an advert for um, COVID organics. I mean, so he, he gives us a little bit of information about the curfews and what's opening and how many people are allowed to congregate. And then he just tells us how important it is to drink COVID organics. 
and that we don't need to worry because we've got COVID organic. So this, this horrible virus which is sweeping the world won't affect Madagascans because we've got it. And if, if, as long as you drink it, you won't get COVID organic. So if you do get it, then you can drink it and you're better to get rid of it. Um, so it's all right. Yeah, and presumably this hasn't really had certification from global medical authorities. Uh, yes, I would say that's certainly <laughs> the case. <laughs> not, 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 not. Do Madagascans believe it? You mentioned there that children don't want to drink it. That might just be because of the taste. But do, do the general public, are they sceptical as well? In, in my experience, yes. People have to be a bit quite I mean, a bit careful about um, what they say about it. There have been cases of being, people being arrested for even just posting on Facebook um, uh, anything anti it. But the people I've spoken to don't seem to think much of it and are actually, I mean, good on them, they're actually saying we're just waiting for the real cure from arrest. I mean, having said which, he has done quite well in trying to market it abroad and I know it's caused sort of a great debate in various African countries as as whether they should 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 buy it and sort of part of this sort of south south cooperation. Mm. So it, it's 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 having an effect beyond beyond our shores. Yeah, I mean, while COVID organics seems like a pretty bizarre way, of, as you say, almost Trumpian in this sort of home remedy way of tackling an infectious disease. This pandemic has been pretty tough for Madagascar. What else has the president been doing to tackle the pandemic in the country? Well, I mean, you say it's been tough. I mean, we haven't had very many cases and certainly hardly any deaths. We, I mean, in terms of recorded deaths, we're just about, I think, 235 last time I checked. And obviously we could argue about what that means. I mean, recorded deaths can only can, can, can only be recorded if people have actually tested positive. And of course, that that's not so much the case here as, as it would be in Europe. Mm. But I, I'd say, I'd say... For Madagascar, the real impact has been as a result of uh, the indirect effects as 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 a result of the regulations surrounding um surrounding COVID prevention. So, in p- particularly something I talk about a lot is uh, lack of international travel has meant that there is suddenly no tourism at all. But not just that, most internationals have left, um, including people who work in international development including the British ambassador and the deputy. People, people haven't felt safe to continue to be in Madagascar if they can't get out, which is understandable. But with aid programmes halted, with vaccination programmes being set back, with famine prevention programmes being ceased, this has a huge impact on Madagascar. And as I say, along with the lack of tourism, which, which is, is, is really uh, hurting a lot of people. So, so I think there are two things here. First is the health impact on other illnesses and diseases. And second is the economic impact. On that first one, on on the diseases that Madagascar still has to deal with, is COVID, do you think it should be deprioritised, as it were, when it comes to the face, in the face of other diseases like typhoid fever? I th- I would think so. I can't really understand why an illness like COVID, which has such a low fatality rate compared with other illnesses we're looking at. As I say, um, in Madagascar, we've had plague outbreaks. Bubonic plague has a 30% death rate. Um, pneumonic plague is it, it, it is 100% mortality unless you have treatment, which many people don't get. I mean, in, in addition, if you look at the demographics of Madagascar, half the population are aged 20, 20 or under. 
um, it's a really youthful population. We've got hardly any obesity or, um, or diabetes or other risk factors. So it, it does seem strange to me that, I mean, taking the country as a whole, that that COVID has become such a priority. Mm. And yet you say that the government has still embarked on a strategy of lockdown. You talked about curfews earlier mm. on the podcast. So it's the country is still being locked down. What does that mean for the people in the country in terms of the economic impact? Because I imagine that fewer Madagascans can do the sort of work from home kind of thing. <laughs> yes, no, certainly most people don't have an internet connection. I mean, it's been devastating for the tourism industry, which is one of the biggest industries in Madagascar, uh, because obviously we have no international tourists now. And it's really fascinating to see how even this affects people who aren't involved in tourism, because it affects everyone is sort of on the food chain of of, of tourism somehow, um, at least in the town where I live. And so people who would even have nothing to do with tourism normally, their clients can't afford to use them anymore. And Everyone who works, everyone has a job, which, which is a minority, is, is supporting a, sort of a whole load of other people. And now, as people, fewer and fewer people have jobs, each person is supporting more and more dependents, family members or, or, or other relatives of, of some sort. So that's, that's really hard. And it means that, un, unlike in the rest, where you can sort of talk about sort of economic impact versus, versus health, you can't do that in a sort of developing world context in, in a poor country like Madagascar, because if you don't have money, you can't afford to feed yourself and you can't afford to buy basic medication. And and this this translates very, diff, very, very quickly in, into a higher mortality rate, which we can see coming and, and, and is quite worrying. Mm. What do the public think about it? Or do they, um, in the UK, for example, the public opinion is mainly in support of lockdown and is stricter, the better in some ways. Do Madagascans feel differently given all, we, that, all that we've talked about? I, I think people are confused about it because people see that this is something which people are really worried about globally. So they think it must be something really terrifying. And so we've seen that people have had COVID from their symptoms, but they've assumed it's just been a, a bug going around. There's been this bug going around, which has been really bad, which has made people really tired. But clearly it's not COVID, because if it were COVID, you'd sort of probably cough up blood and then die a few days later, because that, that's the level of disease they're expecting. So I think that there is concern about it. And I think this reflects sort of the international cons- concern with COVID. And it, uh, absolutely, you can you could criticise the government for um, perhaps being too harsh, but it's only really doing what every other government around the world is doing. I think it's only it's only sort of following the lead taken. And in fact, it's being encouraged to do it. It's, it's seen as irresponsible, isn't it? Not not to lock down. So I don't I don't blame the government for its attitude. I I just find it slightly puzzling, given the situation in Madagascar. And indeed, in other sub-Saharan African countries, that this attitude has been taken. Joe, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Pick up an issue of the magazine to read all of the pieces discussed in the podcast and more from Barbara Emil, ex-wife of Conrad Black, Rod Little on why he needs to be assertive, and the author Adam Begley reviews a new book on French cooking. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. <laughs>